I think there's a bit of a misconception in terms of what patients' expectations are, what you can do for them as a provider, answers that you can find. And I think it's true on both sides. I think providers feel that way, and I think patients feel that way. So then when there's unanswered questions, it's an uncomfortable place to be. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Living Breathing Medicine, a podcast where two family practice doctors have candid conversations with other healthcare providers about finding the humanity in medicine. I'm Dr. Cecily Havert, and on today's episode of Living Breathing Medicine, my colleague Dr. Natasha Beauvais and I welcomed psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner Christy Davenport to the program. Now, Christy is someone I've known since she was finishing her training as a family nurse practitioner almost 10 years ago. She came to nursing via a somewhat indirect path after experiencing a tragic loss, which sent her away from medicine for a short while. But her love and passion for patient care, thankfully for all of us, brought her back. She now feels at home caring, especially for the mental health care needs of those she treats. Christy has an amazing ability to find an empathic connection with her patients that very likely took root in her start as a nurse. During today's episode, Christy led us through an exploration of a memorable patient who is suffering from chronic pain fueled by a somatic disorder, which is a condition characterized by a significant focus on physical symptoms to a level that results in major distress. These individuals can have excessive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors related to the physical symptoms and typically are very challenging to treat, but sometimes these are the most important patients to learn from. Christy, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad to get to talk to you and Cecily together. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so I'm so flattered. So just to jump us off, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the practice of medicine? Sure. Well, I've always loved the sciences, and um, I think most people would describe me as a people person. So a career in healthcare seemed like a logical choice fairly early on. Um, I love talking to people and hearing their stories, and I'm a middle child, so I think that also played a bit into um, being a diplomat and a helper. I did um, have some other jobs prior to entering into healthcare. Um, I dabbled in a few other areas, and um, I think this, and this, well, this did have a lot to do with the fact that, you know, I actually suffered my own personal trauma when I was in college, and I felt like I needed um, time to process that. So my father died of leukemia when I was 19, and so I found it very difficult and triggering to be in the hospital setting. So initially, I really kind of fled from the healthcare scene um, and entered the safe world of, of pharmaceuticals. But I felt I was very unfulfilled in that environment, and I knew that it, I would be best serving others by going into healthcare. So it was actually my husband um, who convinced me that I should think about going into nursing. Wow. Well, sometimes the road to you know where we end up is not always the straightest path. Yeah. You did what you needed to do. So, so I um, applied to nursing school and got in. And then I was really, I always say, you know, being a nurse at the bedside is like being in the muck with the people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. You're really kind of in there. But it was a great experience. So I was a bedside nurse in the hospital um, for, like you said, uh, seven years or so. Um, eventually, I, I knew that I was going to go back to school and um, get my nurse practitioner degree. And so I did that. And then since that time, I've been in outpatient care. Yeah, I haven't heard this story before. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you might share 
something about that beginning, you know, when you decided at first you said I was going to run away from clinical care. I couldn't stay in the hospital because of what my dad went through. And then suddenly you take on a clinical inpatient nursing job for a long time. Yeah. So what, what was that like interior transition and that decision to do that? You know, I think it was really just my own processing of everything that happened. So I was pretty young when my dad was sick. He was I was 19. And I really honestly watched him suffer through leukemia and pass away in front of me. And so I was very traumatized by that. Um, and I was actually working in a hospital at the time in college. And I kept thinking that I was like seeing him around the corner. I mean, it was just such a weird situation. And so I felt like I needed to kind of get away from that. And I don't really, there wasn't anything I wouldn't say special that happened, but I just think I kind of grew up. Like I was probably, I guess I was 24 when I entered nursing. And so I'd had like five years or so to just Mm. kind of try and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I felt, I went to work every day and I came home and I, I remember really having this kind of aha moment where I was feeling like I actually just felt kind of dead inside. Like I just, like my life wasn't meaningful to anybody working in business. Um, I wasn't helping anyone. I just, I don't know. I just felt like I had a lot to offer and I wasn't offering it to anyone. Hmm. Um, So I think I was still pretty nervous to enter the clinical world um, when I applied to nursing school, but I think in my heart, I knew it was the right thing to do. And I think my husband, Andrew, telling me, encouraging me to do it was the first step. And then I just, it was like desensitization. You know, you just go into the hospital and you're just there. And like, it's not as scary as maybe once I once thought it was. Did it feel right to you when you were there? Did you feel like you made the right decision right away? Or is it something that you had to come to? No, I think once I was in it, yes, I felt like this is where I'm, yep, this is where I'm supposed to be. And then nurse practitioner, you got that degree. And that's where you and I met, actually, when you were just finishing your training and you were doing, I guess, an internship or externship with a nurse practitioner I was working with. And then you started your job at your first job, actually, at the practice I was at at that time. That truly was almost like a fellowship for me. I consider that that period of time, like my, my NP fellowship after school. Yeah. And then we continued to work together. You joined me when I went to a different practice and, and I think you and I shared a lot of patients together and we did a lot of mental health care. That can be a very heavy thing to have to deal with, or, you know, a heavy topic or something heavy that you have to, you know, help patients through. And it was helpful that I had you (laughs) and and probably vice versa that we had each other to sort of lean on a little bit um, to help these patients through some of the hardest, their hardest moments, their hardest times. Yeah. I mean, I think mental health patients can be very challenging for people. And I think some providers don't, don't enjoy working with them. And I think that's okay. You know, I think just knowing where you stand is, is good. You know, at some point in time, I did sort of highlight on my bio on the website that I really enjoyed working with mental health patients. And I think that we eventually really kind of um, acquired quite a group of them. And 
because I think mental health patients actually seek out providers that are empathetic to them or to those you know, their issues. So. Well, open to it. And, you know, you, it, yeah. you know, if they know that there's a safe place for them, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's where they go. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, working in primary care and realizing how much of a need there is for mental health. So, I mean, I estimated that about 30% of my day and our patients were suffering from some kind of mental health issue typically anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression. So I realized um, in that nurse practitioner primary care role that, first of all, there's such a need. Second of all, access to care comes through primary care for these patients. And it really became one of my favorite populations to treat. And so that's when I decided that to become specialized. So One of the discussions that we had prior to this podcast was talking about maybe a patient or an experience in healthcare that that shaped us or moved us or that stuck with us for some reason. Can you go ahead and share a little bit about someone who might have played that role for you? Sure. I will just start off by saying that in general, the patients that presented with physical symptoms, so I found there were a lot of patients that came in with fatigue, palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath. Um, They would come in and be very concerned about that particular symptom and typically not have a great understanding that that could possibly be a manifestation of a mood disorder. So I found this an interesting population to work with, and I, I considered these patients actually somewhat easy to spot. You know, I felt like a relatively easy workup you could do. And then if that was negative, you know, they were often relieved to learn, oh, okay, it's it's just anxiety um, that I'm experiencing. And the diagnosis seemed to make sense to them. And this particular patient differed from that situation. So he came in and had a very specific, very severe, diffuse yet somewhat localized right-sided thoracic chest wall pain. And it was very intense. He had already had a partial workup done when he came to me. Based on his level of discomfort, I obviously took him very seriously. um, And we did a very thorough and involved workup, included MRIs and CAT scans, chest X-rays, EKGs, We had an EMG done, and I know that I sent him to cardiology, pulmonology, neurology, pain management. (laughs) There was a lot of consults requested for him. And so at every turn, his workup really came back without any real significant findings. And not only that, the medications that I prescribed for him, and I know that I actually had other colleagues at the practice see him, Um, He really didn't respond to those either. And he wasn't med-seeking. You know, he did not want to have opioids. He NSAIDs gave him side effects, you know. So he tried a lot of different things. And he was offered cortisone injections from pain management, Botox injections from neurology. He had tried opioids. Nothing worked. So he was a challenge. And I think because of just his level of, like, pain and just the specificity, the specific location of his pain, I was really convinced that there's got to be something wrong here. Yeah, This can't can't just be 
quote unquote in his head, you know? Yeah. Because sometimes there are those patients where you you kind of get that sense because they have, they, they come in and they're acting anxious, you know, and then they have a, a diffuse symptoms, palpitations, sweating, headaches and everything. And, and granted, you know, you do your due diligence and you listen, because I think that's probably what, well, that is the most important thing at that moment is to listen and to validate what they're experiencing. But sometimes you kind of get a sense of, okay, well, we'll rule these other things out, but on the differential is, is potentially anxiety. It seemed like for this patient that anxiety or, you know, mental health was much further down because it was more of a kind of confusing you just had the feeling like maybe there was something else going on. So it does sound like it was more of a challenge. Definitely. Yes, definitely a challenge. And I do think other professionals were also challenged by him. You know, mm-hmm. I, I got the sense from the consult letters that came in and just from his own experience that he was a challenge for, for specialists as well. It was frustrating actually to work with him. And I found that um, it frustrating in that we, I, I just felt like, you know, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I couldn't help him. How do, how do we help him, right? I didn't know what to do next. And so I would start to see him on my schedule. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Okay, what have we done? What have we done? And like, I would just look through and I'd see all the things we did. And is there anything else we could possibly do? And who am I going to refer him to next? What medication might we try? And I, I don't know. I was really kind of at a loss. And we did screen, or I did screen him for anxiety and for depression. And he did have some anxiety, but it was hard to kind of tease out, was he anxious because he was so nervous about what was happening in his body? Or was the anxiety causing the symptom, which just, just seemed odd to me since it was so localized, I think. I felt that that, you know, medicine was sort of failing him or we were failing him or I was failing him that I couldn't help him. And I really wanted him to see someone else just because I, I didn't know what to do with him. So what happened? Well, I referred him to physical therapy um, and he had been going and physical therapy was very slow. Results from PT were very, very, very slow. And I remember his physical therapist at one point saying to me, he needs to learn to live with and accept some of his pain. And I remember thinking, huh, okay, does he need to learn to live with his pain? Oh my goodness. This is such a new concept that we have to learn to cope with pain or I wasn't sure. It was a little unsettling for me. Yeah. But, um, you know, is it okay to stop looking for a cause? Is it okay to stop now? We stop looking for a reason and just treat the dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is that ultimately what you did? I mean, was there some level? I mean, sometimes you also have to get to a point. It's like, you know, we have looked at everything. We have tried everything. And you do sort of have to get to this, you know, now let's just you know, focus on getting you feeling better. Mm -hmm. So you tried the physical therapy. Was there anything that anything else? Because this is when you start thinking outside the box. This is when you start saying, okay, well, all the traditional stuff isn't working here. What, you know, what else could we really try at this point? Mm -hmm. So we did get them on some Lexapro. And we had started, um, I know for those listening and thinking, what about Cymbalta? We definitely tried Cymbalta. Um, I, he, was, he tried Gabapentin, Neurontin, um, Lyrica, all of those, and just didn't, had side effects or didn't like them. Um, so eventually we did get him on some Lexapro. He tolerated it. And he did start to feel slightly better. And then we did refer, I referred him to counseling. 
So unfortunately, I actually left the practice and I don't know really the end of the story, which I guess not a great patient to use when I don't know the the end of the answer here. But I think he's someone that I'm sure many people encounter in some way where, you know, you just don't have answers for patients and you're not sure when to stop looking or to pivot and think about what else is going on. And it's hard as healthcare providers when we reach that point where we feel like we, we don't really have anything else to offer. Part of what was so challenging also for us as healthcare providers during this time was that we just, we didn't have a good solution. It was really hard to counsel patients. It was hard to, you know, even give them reassurance because we didn't completely, you know, understand what was, what was at stake. And so it's hard when as healthcare providers, we start to become maybe less sure of ourselves. Yeah, it's hard to kind of throw up your hands and say, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know. And I and I, I feel like I can't help you. And I think what I learned just through this program that I'm doing right now at Hopkins, which is the um, psychiatric mental health certification for MPs, you know, we talk a bit about somatic disorders. And there are some things that you can do, some recommendations that they have to help treat these patients. These patients are very difficult to treat and don't often have resolution to symptoms. Looking back, it's like, oh, I could have done a couple other things with him. What would you have done differently? So one of the things would be to really consider this somatic symptom disorder much earlier on Mm. in the process. So just knowing that it exists, first of all, and thinking about it when persistent symptoms with no real cause are starting to appear. And then screening early on for mental health. So screening for, you know, the anxiety, the depression, any substance use or misuse, Mm -hmm. and even, you know, even, well, even suicidal ideation with patients that are suffering from chronic pain or from somatic symptoms that don't have answers. And then other things that were recommended um, were, and I know that some healthcare providers do this with their patients, um, setting appointments at regular intervals. So having the patient come in regularly rather than having them come in when their symptoms are escalating as a way to relieve their anxiety and just kind of keep track of them. And then also just like treatment goals. So like not, we're not going to necessarily be able to cure you, but we can help you manage and cope with your symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of reframing your, your, what the goal is for these patients. How did your relationship with him change through all of this? You know, did you start to see him on a more regular basis? Did he, you know, I'm just curious to know, you know, cause in the beginning, a lot of times when patients come to you, it's, they don't necessarily have that trust factor mm-hmm. and it takes a while. I mean, did you see that evolve as you worked with them? I definitely did. Looking back, I wish that I had been the one to say, okay, let's see you every week or every every two weeks um, to really kind of make sure you're doing okay. Um, but he was really the one that was like, okay, I'm coming back in. I'm coming back in. I'm coming back in. So he was the one he, setting. Yeah, it sounded like he needed that. Yeah. That's yeah. something he needed. <laughs> he needed reassurance that yeah. you know, he was okay. As time went on, I, I do remember I would walk into the office and we would kind of stare at each other and we would both laugh a little bit. You yeah. Know? Like, both yeah. Be like, what are we going to do with you? You know, <laughs> he'd kind of throw up his hands as well. And we kind of got to a point where, like, well, if we can't, 
you know, we're done crying about this. Let's just laugh because it, yeah. really was, it was tough, but it was, you know, I, I think he got to a point where he realized, okay, nothing, there is therapeutic value in the workup because nothing really serious was discovered. And so he was reassured, even though he didn't know how, what to do with this pain, he at least knew, okay, we've exhausted all the really bad things. And it sounds like he eventually accepted that because sometimes patients won't accept that. Sometimes you do have to coach them a little bit, ensuring them that once you've done this workup, you know, we can start thinking about other things at this point. I think there's a bit of a misconception in terms of what patients' expectations are, what you can do for them as a provider, answers that you can find. And I think it's true on both sides. I think providers feel that way. And I think patients feel that way. So then when there's unanswered questions, it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's hard to know where that line falls on kind of resting at that place ever. And it's always different for everyone. And I'm just thinking as you're talking about this person, I have at least three people right now I can think of where there's a continual question in my mind, you know, is this just something that in 20 years I haven't come across, so I can't name it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, do I need to continue to just slowly and continually turn over other stones and just kind of be curious and, and talk to some other people, other physicians? Or do I comfortably rest and say, I've, we've done the right thing, we've done enough? And of course, all along, no matter where we are in that continuum, we need to address your mental health needs. One thing that I find that, especially when people present with pain, is to validate it. One of the things that they're afraid of is for them to, somebody to say to them, oh, this is all in your head. And it's not. I mean, even if your abdominal pain is, because, is purely because of anxiety, I mean, that pain is real. That pain is there. And that's something that I try to share with patients and, you know, validating that, yeah, no, you, you are in pain. This is, but, you know, we sometimes we just have to do other avenues to get to treating that pain. And um, so sometimes that helps diffuse the situation a little bit. But, you know, I don't know if we ever really truly give up on looking up. I mean, so Christy, you know, even though you sort of lost the patient to, you know, to follow up, I don't know, like, even if you would have continued seeing him for years, I mean, I don't think there's ever a, a point where you say, we're, we're not going to stop thinking about this. I mean, you, so it's always, it's an ongoing workup, but then you, sometimes you just, you go towards another path in treating it and say, well, what do you need at this moment? We need to treat it rather than diagnose it maybe. Yeah, and some of that treatment might extend to the possibility of some psychosocial issues, right, or factor that might yeah. be impacting them. So encouraging them to, you know, think about, well, I know this is not all in your head. I do believe you, and I am validating that you have this pain, but let's explore possibly how your anxiety or concerns around the pain might also be worsening the pain or triggering mm -hmm. it or increasing it and see if we can help manage the pain as well. Christy, I'm not sure if you, if your sympathy to that or your kind of uh, understanding of the situation is partly a natural kind of empathetic response to people, or if it's something that you have gone through yourself 
I had one experience in medical school where I had a very somatic experience to a very emotional experience. And um, it was so educational for me because it was so physically, absolutely physically powerful. Hmm. And in this particular case, I was stressed during medical school. It was a pass-fail school. So uh, for all those patients who are my patients, uh, I only passed medical school. I didn't get any A's. Um, (laughs) um, And, you know, I really cognitively understood that I was going to pass medical school. And I also cognitively understood that if I failed a year, I could repeat the year and I could go back. And in fact, I wasn't really technically worried about my grades, but I I just had this pit in my stomach that I couldn't undo. And fortunately, I was working with a mental health provider at the time, and she took me through an exercise in which I experienced incredibly powerful kind of vestibular symptoms for several minutes while I was kind of unwinding this myself in this exercise with, with her. And I think Although that's not the symptom that I'm typically treating in another person, just recognizing the forceful power of the physical experience of the unwinding of an emotional symptom Hmm. was so helpful for me later to be kind of willing to recognize how massively physical those feelings, those symptoms can be. Yeah. You know, I think the other time I've I've noticed that was in in moments of of grief or dread, you know, just how physical I personally can be uh, impacted. Have either of you had anything that was like a teaching moment for yourself in your life about that? Well, I've had certainly like the upper shoulder back pain associated with just like the muscle tension and. I do think that I've also had um, experienced rather recently, actually, um, a panic attack, which I did not recognize as a panic attack. So I think initially, all these years that I've been practicing, I think I've just been empathetic to it. But yes, I have had a a panic attack um, that came out of the blue in the middle of the night, um, where I was experiencing what I think was some reflux, but then I just was convinced that I was having a heart attack. And had a panic attack and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I was having so much chest pain and dizziness and lightheadedness and palpitation, all of it, you know, and wondering how I was, where I was going to the ER. Um, And I thought, oh my gosh, this is what our patients experience. And it's real. It is real. Mm -hmm. And it's so reassuring, or at least it was for me, to get that cardiologist to tell me your heart is okay. The workup is still very important. So that's been my experience. Not as intense, I would say, as, as what you experienced, which what, what was the vestibular issue? It was such an interesting moment. I mean, I had been walking around feeling like I had a pit in my stomach for a couple of weeks and I, I was too stressed to talk to anybody. And it didn't really feel like it was a familiar experience to me. I mean, I've been through a lot of academics and I've been fine. And so I talked to this counselor about it and I said, look, I know that I am going to pass medical school. As a matter of fact, I think I'm doing great. And I know that even if I don't pass, I can still pass later. And so it's not, it's not cognitive. Mm-hmm. Like this problem, mm-hmm. I can rationally understand that I don't actually have this problem, but physically, yes, 
I'm very impacted by this experience. And so instead of trying to take me through a cognitive treatment for that, to once again tell myself it was going to be fine and of course I would pass medical school, she actually had me sit in a chair and put my hand on this place where I was feeling this pit in my stomach. And having just been through a year of anatomy, I mean, I had this sensation that there was a muscle that was very clenched right there in my stomach, but I had dissected the entire human body and I knew that there was no muscle right there that could ever be clenched. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so I said, look, I know there's no muscle here, but that is the physical experience I have is this clenched muscle right in the pit of my stomach. So she just had me close my eyes in this room and rub this place that was clenched. And my physical experience was one of, of huge um, kind of a feeling like I was on a, on a spinning uh, amusement park ride. You know, I was, I was sitting with my feet planted on the floor in a stable chair and I thought I was in outer space, like whirling and whirling and whirling and whirling and I explained to her what I was feeling. And she said, okay, and keep your eyes closed and just allow yourself to be kind to this place in your, your body that's feeling this clenching. Hmm. And it, it must have lasted five or 10 minutes. I mean, it was quite a roller coaster ride. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually it stopped. And I had never left the room or the, my feet were always on the floor. <laughs> and, you know, it was a very, very physical experience, so physically different from what was actually physically happening to me. Hmm. Did it help anything? Absolutely. It was somehow so helpful. I don't know wow. why. That's amazing. <laughs> but it was, some, it was absolutely, it moved me so much forward in that kind of recognition that, you know, physically I was holding on to this kind of mm. tightness and cognitively and in reality I wasn't needing to but it wasn't approachable I, I think that's something really helpful to talk about with patients is that anxiety can be the distance between what you can tell yourself and what you're physically feeling mm. and or at least that was how that manifested itself for me So like I could tell myself I would be fine. And yet physically, I didn't feel that way. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard because you feel kind of disconnected when you say that I I don't feel anxious. However, your body is still giving you the message that you are. It's hard to then come to recognize that these physical symptoms are actually a manifestation of anxiety that's just so deep and not obvious. Because I've had a lot of patients say, oh, I don't feel anxious you know, or like insomnia. I don't know why I go to, when I lay down to go to sleep at night, I don't feel anxious. I just can't sleep. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. I mean, you, you have to dig a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and sort of understand what, you know, what, what is the body? Sometimes what is the body trying to tell you that your brain isn't necessarily able to tell you? So the body sometimes has to <laughs> jump in there and say, Hey, hello, <laughs> something's going on here. <laughs> I think sometimes we know a lot and we we realize we shouldn't be anxious because of X, Y, and Z. It doesn't mean that we're not. But I I do think there are somatic therapists and various somatic therapies that 
would probably be really helpful for these patients and something that maybe, you know, we should seek out and find people that actually do work, therapeutic massage and various other modalities for somatic complaints. Well, I do know that there are therapists a lot for um, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, um, commonly using hypnosis and other forms of cognitive behavior therapy have actually shown to relieve that. Yeah. So, um, you know, and we're, we're learning a lot about the, the, you know, the mind gut access and everything, but I think that we are just sort of the, at the tip of the iceberg of understanding what is possible with managing our pain and, and other physical complaints. Absolutely. Something we've been talking about, um, Cecily and I, as we've been learning from other people is that we now approach things differently, you know, in year 20 of practicing medicine than we did in year 10 and in year five. Um, and I'm just curious if you, especially because you've had really now going on three different types of clinical training, you know, you had nursing training, you had nurse practitioner training, which is where you're providing um, care management uh, and you're about to get, you know, to take another layer deeper into psych nurse practitioner training. I'm just wondering if you might think about like how you, how you might've thought about these problems either five years ago or also as a nurse, you know, what was that like to experience a patient like that from a nursing perspective and, and how does that feel to you differently? From a nursing perspective is a bit more holistic, I would say. I think I looked at the psychological component a lot more closely than I did as a nurse practitioner. And because I think when you're focused on like, what is the medical reason for this patient? I think our Western medicine is so focused on one type of treatment or cause. We consider alternative or complementary therapies the acupuncture, the yoga, the exercise, the mindfulness, all of that in other cultures, they that's wrapped into their just medicine world. So I think as a nurse, I was much more focused on the psychological components. I think NP training kind of narrowed the scope. And I think my psych NP training is just kind of bringing it a little bit back together. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, I've never been trained as a nurse, but I think that, you know, being, you know, when you, especially when you're working in the hospital with sick people, you were there to offer them comfort mm -hmm. and um, offer them care and to help them feel better. And you were probably connected to them on a different level. It wasn't necessarily your job in the hospital as working as an RN to figure out why this was happening. Your job was to comfort them. Whereas I think, you know, when you, um, you know, got, you know, went further on nurse practitioner, now you're talking about management and, you know, and that's as we're trained as doctors to do the same thing. And so you, you know, carry this heaviness your job is to figure out what's going on, right? It's it's kind of a little bit like detective work, but there's a little bit more to it. But I think it's interesting what you say about now going back into, you know, doing the psych component of it, just sort of going full circle mm -hmm. and sort of reconnecting a little bit with um, the psychological components and just figuring out, you know, what what do these patients need in the moment? And, and maybe that's 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 really all 
<laughs> that that just kind of boils down to what everybody, you know, mm-hmm. what we should all should be sort of looking at. I would, again, I would think as, as a younger physician, you were probably focused so much on, I don't want to miss something um, yeah. and a younger provider. Um, but as you get more experienced and you're probably able to focus now more on, on some of the other issues, the psychological issues or the family issues or, you know, other issues, because you're more comfortable in what, you know, and what, what you are, are not missing. And I think it's really provider specific. I mean, I don't think I necessarily needed to get this training. I think that a lot of nurse practitioners and physicians practice in a manner that allows them to think about the psychological components, or they're just naturally kind of gifted at that. Well, what's great, Chrissy, is that you didn't maybe need to get the training, but you got the training. And so now it's a different window through which to view everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I've just enjoyed it all. You know, every little section I'm like, Ooh, this is interesting. Oh my gosh, we're going to learn about this now. You know, so it doesn't feel like work to me. The fact that, you know, you had that nursing experience too, just adds so much and the extra layer of compassion and, you know, understanding what good medicine actually is and what you want it to be, knowing what patients need and what they want in the moment. So I think that that's, that's invaluable. I don't know that I'd want to go back to the hospital, but I just, you know, my heart goes out to all of, all of, all of healthcare workers, but particularly the nurses who are sort of left at the bedside, managing the emotions. I mean, I think that's what happens is they get the news, they get the diagnosis, they get the orders from the doctors, and then the nurses are there to just sort of pick up any pieces of the patient's response to all of that information. Just being there with the patient, you know, and process, helping them process it is just kind of what an, I think what a lot of nursing is. And it's, that's the unpaid or the untaught side of nursing as well. You're making me really think about, or reflect about how that works currently in our outpatient offices. Your nursing experience was doing pretty intensive inpatient hospital work, post-surgical, post-trauma, really big events in people's lives. And I'm also just thinking about how that works in our outpatient setting with our nurses and just how much the care is completed and started by the nurses. And in fact, like, how do we both be in our absolute best charism? I wonder how you work differently with nurses having been a nurse. I think I appreciate nurses more. Um, I'm not saying I appreciate them more than physicians do. I just appreciate what they're doing, the load they have. I think it's like an emotional load. The patient is processing whatever they're going through with that nurse. And they have 12 hours to do it because that nurse is going to be there for several hours of a 12-hour day. So I just think the model that you're using, which is spending more time with your patients, is giving you that possible space to do that. Well, you're talking about how the, you know, what is good medicine? It's, it's providing that emotional space in some cases. Um, it's turning over every stone in other cases. And I'm just thinking also about this person that you presented or anyone who comes in with this kind of spectrum of, is it physical or is it emotional? And like, how, how do we provide good care when we don't have a definitive answer? What to you is good medicine in that situation of that spectrum of 
physical and emotional? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what I could have done or what I what I should have done is that just have been more comfortable in that space with him mm. to just say, okay, we just don't know. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And let's now move forward and try and help you function in life. And let's set regular visits so we can see one another and check in. And if you're, if he's a data person and wants to do some monitoring, there's tools out there to help monitor his somatic symptoms And then we can kind of work on those. And if he's struggling with feeling overwhelmed, then we get him into therapy and we, you know, make sure that he's practicing mindfulness and engaged in hobbies and living a full life. I just love what you just said that I would have, if I could have done it differently, I would have felt more comfortable just sitting with him and recognizing that we were going to continue this path together. And it was okay that we didn't know the answer yet. Yeah. Yeah, I think learning how to be okay with that is such an important uh, and maturing process in practicing medicine. I think a lot of times what I tell my patients when they come in and, you know, we're doing the workup and I said, you know, I, you know, first of all, I explained this is a lot like detective work. And I said, you know what, I'm, you know, we're really good at knowing what it isn't, but sometimes it's really hard to figure out what it is. And that comes much later, but I'm not going to give up and we're going to keep looking but I'm going to, you know, make sure I know what it isn't. And so I think sometimes in just explaining that to patients, but also being humble enough to say, I don't know what this is right now, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to give up is, is important. Yeah. And I think that allows them not to just continue shopping around, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we probably subconsciously punt patients too. I don't know, mm-hmm. but they might, they get the sense, you know, okay, she doesn't know. And now she's, done with me and I have to go find somebody else. I think naming it, honestly, also naming it, telling them this is what it is. It actually has a name. You know, it's called somatic symptom disorder. You know, it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have, you can have somatic symptom disorder and also have another diagnosis. Right. But naming it, I think helps patients also start moving forward. Even if they have a physical thing that you're naming, I, I, you know, I remember a person in my practice who had lost her hearing in one ear hmm. and it was irrevocable. I mean, I don't think there was anything anyone could have done. And I just said, I, I don't think that there's anything we can do to fix this problem, but I will sit here with you and be with you in it and you know, figure out how to be in it. Hmm. And I think that was exactly the permission that she needed kind of to stay and breathe herself into that new way of navigating the world. Yeah. And and to not feel alone. Yep, I think that's very, very true. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have uh, had a very good conversation here. Christy, I am so happy and grateful that you uh, agreed to come on the podcast here with us and discuss these different topics. And um, I hope that we can talk again soon. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. And it's so nice to know there are just such fabulous doctors out there. Well, thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Christy. Thank you. You too. Thank you, Christy, for this opportunity to talk about the powerful and enigmatic physical symptoms we can all have from emotional and psychological triggers. 
you're clearly a lifelong learner and it's encouraging to hear how your initial experiences as a teen led you to pursue nursing and then become a nurse practitioner. And now so exciting to hear about you opening your own practice in Alexandria, Virginia as a psych nurse practitioner. You can find links to Christy Davenport's new practice in the show notes, as well as other references to working with somatic symptoms. Living Breathing Medicine is a podcast by Dr. Cecily Havert and Dr. Natasha Beauvais, two family physicians exploring compassion and humanity in medicine. Our producer is Melody Roll. The theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Please find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and links in our show notes and find us back here in two weeks. Until then, be well and take good care.